ночной шли вдвоем, а фонарики горели. И при виде их на момент притих, и сердца наши замляли. Hello and welcome to the SRB podcast, where in each episode we discuss Eurasian politics, culture, and history. I'm your host, Sean Guillory. Just remember, if you like what you hear on the SRB podcast, consider becoming a monthly sustainer on Patreon or make a one-time donation. This podcast comes cheap, but it's not free to make. Becoming a monthly sustainer for a mere $5 or $10 helps me give you in-depth discussions about Russia and the wider region that you won't find anywhere else. You can help support the podcast by going to seansrussiablog.org. The Weaponization of Information, The Information War, Fake News, RT, and Sputnik. Anyone who is slightly paying attention to Russia in the last three years has heard these terms. Russian propaganda is in vogue again as the threat of the day. But what is the nature of Russian propaganda? Is RT really a threat? There are few better people to ask these questions than to Alexei Kovelov. He spends most of his waking hours watching Russian TV and exposing Russian propaganda. But that's not all. Alexei also has a lot to say about how Russia has been covered in the Western media and how it, too, is not without its misguided tropes and hysteria. Alexei Kovalov is a journalist living and working in Russia. He was a senior editor at RIA Novosti, Russia's largest state news agency, and edited Inosmi.ru a website that translates news articles from foreign publications into Russian. He's the founder and editor of NoodleRemover.News, a Russian-language fact-checking and anti-propaganda website. He writes a bi-monthly column for the Moscow Times on the maneuverings of the Russian media. Here is Alexei Kovelov. I thought we'd start by, by having you explain a bit of what your journalism background is and uh, how you end up becoming an observer of Russian media and Russian propaganda. My career is fairly standard for, for, for the industry, for the media industry in Russia. Uh, like most of my peers and colleagues, I've been building my career from the ground up, just heading straight into it, starting in a local daily newspaper, where I started by writing uh, reviews and openings in the back, back pages of a local daily, and just slowly working my way up to a senior editor in a national news agency. And all the way through, I've been observing the way uh, the media work in Russia, the political interference, uh, and all the different biases that affect both the journalists and editors and the, and the audience. And in 2012, I became a senior editor at a national news agency, a state-owned huge media conglomerate where I got a very unique chance to observe this, not just from from inside, but from a senior position, how how decisions are made, what kind of interference there is from the from the state, and it all ended very abruptly and unexpectedly in in late 2013, when the news news agency in question it used to be called Ria Novosti at the time, but it, now it's just part part of of this even bigger state-owned media conglomerate, Russia uh, Сегодня, which confusingly translates as Russia Today, although it's not formally related to the, to, to the TV channel. So it ended in uh, late 2013 with a Putin's executive order, which reworked the entire structure, laid off 2,000, pe- 2000 plus people and rearranged it, including me and uh, every single editor and technical uh, staff there. Some were rehired back into this new structure, but most of the senior staff, including me, was laid off forever. And it came at a very convenient time, because Russia was just jumping into this abyss. It was a couple of months before this point of no return when Russian troops appeared in Crimea. But the in the past, Ria Novosti, the, the Ria Novosti I worked for was unusually independent for, for, for a state-owned publication, which did cause a lot of grief with the Kremlin's media managers. So this reform came at a very opportune time. I'm not going to uh, delve into any conspiracy theories here, but just just as Russia was on the verge of this uh, full-scale war with Ukraine and the grabbing of Crimea, 
it already had in its hands a well-oiled propaganda machine with completely in complete submission to the state, N- not questioning any of, of the of the party lines. So yeah, I was just watching this from for, for, from afar at this uh, at the time, as it was evolving from a respected international news source to this part of a massive uh, multi-billion-dollar propaganda machine, uh, whose sole purpose was not to inform but to promote the the party line, both to the both to a domestic audience and to an international one. And I was watching in dismay with my ex-colleagues, this transfer, this rapid transformation of the, of the place where our names and photographs and were still attached to it. So we were quite concerned about the, the way things were going. And I just started documenting the, 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 the developments. The Russian media is a big, giant corporate monster that includes, you know, print press to state-owned television, right? The, the wide spectrum. How, how do you understand the Russian media landscape and how does the Kremlin try to manage this monster in terms of its control over over messaging and what's reported in the media? Okay, so on the federal federal level, everything is very tightly and directly controlled from Putin's, Putin's administration. And this is state television. Are you speaking of television here, or well, everything basically? If 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 this is a federal publication, whether it's a TV ch- TV channel, uh, even if it's uh, formerly privately owned, like NTV like NTV, which is owned by uh, Gazprom, ba- Gazprom Bank, which is a subsidiary of Gazprom, the largest oil company in Russia and probably in the world. And whether it's it's a private newspaper, w- one of the most popular in Russia, like Komsomolskaya Pravda, or whether it's a radio station, they are all under, the, um, uh, under this administrative umbrella of the president's administration. Well, it's sort of like a fight club where no one will admit to its existence. But if you watch the, the news bulletins on the Russian TV, especially on Sunday, there's, the, the, there's this genre on Russian television, which is um, Sunday news summary programs hosted by the most popular hosts in the country, like Dmitry Kisilov, like the face of Russian propaganda. And if you watch two of them uh, concurrently, uh, like one on the Rossiya channel, uh, hosted by Dmitry Kisilov, and a, and a different one on the channel one. And you see how they actually, how they just read out the talking points. Given, given, you know, it's it, it's it, it's ridiculous how how coordinated and, and choreographed this all is. So it's 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 re- it's actually an open secret. Anybody who's been in the business long enough knows that if you are uh, if you are editor in chief of a federal publication. You are getting calls from uh, from Putin's administration. There is a guy there. It's Putin's de- deputy chief of staff. It's it, it's been different people through uh, throughout the time, but it's uh it's th- this th- this position. Putin's deputy chief of staff is the guy. It's not his job description, but what he does is uh, micromanaging, like manually controlling all the state media in Russia. Not just state media, but all the all, all the federal media in Russia. It's a bit different on the, uh, on a local level. But that, that's how all the media operates. You, you know, he, he can suppress any coverage with a phone call. He can, he can just pick up the phone and something will, can be just blacklisted from, um, uh, whether it's a person or, or event, if it hasn't been explicitly approved from, from the, uh, Putin's administration, it won't be on the news. But the media, I would imagine all of these media managers understand what the, the limits are, right? They, is there constant direct control or is there just intervention at certain points to kind of restructure what's permissible? Uh, well, it's very it's very fluid, and there have been some uh, very uh, apt metaphorical descriptions for for for, for this kind of control. A, a mainstay of the shifting media landscape in Russia is the hostile takeovers of uh, independent newsrooms by loyalist editors. And uh, it's happened quite a few times in the recent, in, in the past several years, a couple of years. And every time that happens, uh, someone in a newsroom leaks the first editorial meeting with the new, with, with the new editors. And at, at one of them, the new editors uh, explained the new line to, to, to the staff. And, this, and they said, we all understand where the double line is. There's, there are these red lines you do not cross. And although nobody nobody tells you where they are, these imaginary red lines, 
and they are shifting all the time these red lines but you just have to keep them in the head and if you if you if you want to do this job you have to just you know uh, automatically uh, just pick them pick these things up if you don't you're just not really made for it what you can write about what angle you can use tone and things like that and uh, it happens in in, in the not just in the in the state-owned news outlets, but in the independent newsrooms too. There's a lot of self-censorship there. Now, let's talk about some of the meat of Russian propaganda and was what it shows. And, and a big role, it seems, is is there's a certain obsession with the West and the, the U.S. in particular. And in this, you can you could talk about how Trump was portrayed and how that has changed over time, particularly after. So what what kind of image does it, images does it present to its audience of the United States and how does it represent how does it present Russia in contrast? Okay, so in a, in a very broad strokes, everyone just doesn't get Russia and everybody is just out to get Russia. We are surrounded by enemies and Oceania has always been at war with Eurasia and it's uh, you know the the list you know the the, the list of enemies keeps keeps changing all the time. And Russia's, Russia and its allies are never to blame for anything. Unless you watch the Russian TV regularly, you don't realize how much rhetorical gymnastic it takes to explain these insane U-turns. Like, for example, uh, take for example Donald Trump. The, from the very start of his campaign, back when uh, he was just one of the Republican contenders, Russian TV has been extremely sympathetic to him. I would even say that no other country in the world has praised Donald Trump as much as Rus- as, as much as Russian TV has. At some po- at some point, Donald Trump uh, at the start of 2016, Donald Trump became the most discussed public figure in the Russian media, more so than, than Vladimir Putin himself. So they've been just showering him with praise. How he's the only man uh, who can fix the abysmal relations between Russia and the United States. How Obama's administration is to blame for absolutely everything that is wrong. And they went as far as claiming that Donald Trump is actually, he's being sabotaged by Obama's stay-behind agents in the White House. Giving, I think, undue credit to the Democratic Party. And as we're talking right now, I'm seeing this again, yet another U-turn, complete U-turn on this policy, because, well, Donald Trump just failed to live up to the expectations. And I'm looking forward to watching this Sunday's uh, uh, summary news shows to, to see how exactly they're going to wriggle out of this trap they, 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 they've been building for himself, this, rhetor- this rhetorical trap. But I'm sure they'll manage because uh, nothing really matters what the, what they said last week or what they're going to say next week. Uh, they can do whatever U-turns they uh, they want, and because there's nobody to 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 hold them to to account for that. There therein lies the this the system's biggest liability. It's so rigid and centrally controlled that it's just not flexible enough to adapt. This was very. Very obvious to, a couple of weeks ago, when these uh, massive protests broke out across Russia, especially in Moscow, and they were all but blacklisted from from, from the state media. You know, uh, I was I was there. I was there in central Moscow, which was in a complete police lockdown. There were thousands of riot police in the streets and, and thousands of people chanting and uh, scuffles between the protesters and the police, but there was nothing on the TV. Because they thought they could just pull the plug and uh, hope that this thing just goes away. Everybody's going to forget about it next week. But that that didn't happen. And there was was a very visible demand for 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 this coverage because people were seeing these protests around them, not just in Moscow and St. Petersburg, yeah, but in places like Mahachkala, the the, uh, the the Republic of Dagestan, which keeps del- delivering like ninety eight percent for Putin and his party, and there were protests there against Putin's corruption, 
and people were seeing the, the, those uh, those protests and rallies around them, but nothing on the TV. And people just turned to to this little independent media so far below the Kremlin's radar uh, that just nobody really took notice of them. And not just independent media, like uh, this news website uh, based in Riga, Latvia, Medusa. And I just checked it. Uh, I checked the traffic stats as they were covering the protests that the state media wouldn't. And they almost reached the uh, the traffic uh, figures of Ria Novosti, like the biggest state news agency with 3,000 people on staff and the budget of 7 billion rubles. Well, I can con- convert it on the fly, but it's, uh, that's a lot of money. So a website with 100 of Ria Novosti's uh, staff and budget did just as well. Because it it filled the gap. It filled there, there was a, a very visible demand for this coverage. So yeah, uh, and a week later, as I was watching the news, they finally broke the silence. And you know what they, you know what Dmitry Kiselyov, like the face, like this this very theatrical, flamboyant face of Russian propaganda said, like his justifi- his justification for not covering the protest a week a week before, he said. We didn't cover this because we, we thought it, it was too unimportant, just like uh, our American colleagues did with Occupy Wall Street. He literally said that. We didn't cover last week's protest because the American media ignored Occupy Wall Street. Yeah, yeah, wow. And, and, and there seems to be, um, and, and there have been some recent articles in the Russian press about this, there seems to be a growing recognition of this. And there's even suggested that there might be another reorganization of Russian state news media because there is a sense that they're losing audience there there is this moral panic about youth protesting and how youth don't you know they go to the internet they're not they're not listening getting their news from federal stations what do you think of of these rumors about a possible another possible reorganization or at least to i'm assuming they they would try to address this flexibility question that you bring up well from what i uh, from what i i've been hearing from the insiders they are very much aware of this problem, but again, this this system is just too too rigid, and they have uh, on one hand they are perfectly aware that they're losing their grip on the public opinion, but on the other hand, they are too afraid to let go even a little bit. The system is built so that it it just doesn't give control away voluntarily. I cannot imagine a situation where Alexei Gromov, the current deputy chief of the uh, of staff. The, who uh, makes the calls and, uh, you know, all the all, all the state media keep mum on something. Like, he would did, he would invite the editors in, uh, of the few remaining independent media in Russia and tell them, okay, guys, so here's the thing. We, we just cannot do this anymore. So here's your, here's your turf. Here's our turf. So just uh, you cover this, we cover that, and that'll be it. I cannot imagine this this ever happening. Uh, no, and uh, this, this is a very you know this is a very visible conundrum. If you know where for the, for the signs where to look, you'll, you'll see the uh, you can you can hear the heads being scratched in these uh, uh, newsrooms. Like, what do we do? We cannot ignore this. But on the other hand, you know we've been spinning this uh, this story of these uh, of this opposition. Uh, that it's so uh, so minuscule and so unimportant, and it's and it's paid for and, and it's supported by the U.S. State Department, so they are uh, they are completely relevant. So they've they've been uh, you know this is this has been the 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 narrative of the past ten years, I'd say. So they they cannot just go on and show on TV all these crowds of people, and you cannot call them like it, it's not it's not really uh, like. A bunch, like a few dozen of uh, these paid-for protesters. No, it's clearly it's when it's clearly visually not a a couple of hundred people. So um, I cannot really. uh, It's it's really fun to watch how they how they wriggle wriggle out of this trap they they of of this hole they dug for themselves. I think it's perhaps significant. I mean, going back to the the how to cover or deal with the protests in the media, it's it, it's they, the, part of the problem is is that the protests weren't confined to just Moscow. The fact that they occurred in you know ninety cities, I think it was in the heartland of Russia, the so called you know Putin majority. End quote. They have to deal with this somehow, right? They can't. They can't. They can't say they're all paid agents of the State Department. 
Yeah, that's the thing because the, back in 2011 and 12, where, where there were when there were these really massive, even bigger than two weeks ago, these protests. But the but the state propaganda successfully managed to pin pin this down to just Moscow and Saint Petersburg. So it it pitted these protesters against uh, the heartland. Like you see, these these are the just these the spoiled Muscovites all riled up because they are just not content with playing their video games and eating their fancy foods. It's them against you, the working people. And, the, and yeah, that narrative really worked for, for a while. I, I mean, the protest really died out after a couple of months. But now, the, the demographics, you know, the social and political uh, fault lines of these protests, are, they are just too, too fragmented to just pin down on one, one phenomenon that you can discredit. So... I, I'm watching these these protests ac across the country, and although the, those that were held at the end of March, there was a unifying, uh, like an overarching theme. There, there was a clear anti-hero, like the, the, the Prime Minister Dmitry Medvedev, which is by far the least evil member of the government, and he's a, he's a he's a really nice guy. I, and he and and I can imagine his disappointment now because he really wanted those people to love him. He he really wanted to appeal to them. Yeah, he he had the image of kind of the prince among the thieves. Yes, yes, and uh, and now all these people turned on him, and uh, you can you can literally see the disappointment on his face. Like I, I trusted you guys. I wanted I I wanted you to like me. But there was a there was this overarching theme of him being well not really that corrupt by Russian standards, but people just use this opportunity to vent their anger on a very different number of issues, social, political, economical. So, for example, in Saint Petersburg, the protests have been boiling up for for, for a while because the the Russian Orthodox Church wants to grab the like the biggest cathedral that's never that's never belonged to it, and people are really angry about it. Yeah, St. Isaac's Cathedral, like the St. Petersburg biggest landmark. And it's never really belonged to the church. And it belongs to the city. And people have been protesting against this for a couple of months now. And they really came out to the streets to, uh, to protest against their thing. And in the south of Russia, there are people uh, protesting against, uh, uh, you know, the land reform uh, that keeps the that empowers the uh, the biggest uh, agricultural conglomerates uh, against the uh, local uh, small-scale agribusinesses. And in Dagestan, it's something else. It's the extreme corruption on a local level, which you don't really see in Moscow anymore, because the, the traffic cops don't, don't really shake you down for, uh, for money. Uh, Dagestan and the Southern Republic, it's, it's really a, a, a huge issue still. So everywhere, people are just uh, somewhere in, in in the far east of Russia. There, the protesters, uh, they really don't like the local governor. Yet, yet another one who is extremely corrupt and criminal. And everywhere, people are just protesting against something they don't like. But it's it's not really one thing that you can pin down and then just throw it away or disc discredit it on on air. So it's really it's really unmanageable at this point because you cannot appeal with a single message to a massive demographics. Particularly since, like, the grievances are overarching in the country, but the the actual anger is really localized, right? It's about the the officials in my region. It's about you know these other other localized issues that all connect, but they can't. You can't message that really effectively. Yeah, that's the thing. I mean, uh, uh, and there uh, there's a different issue with uh, so so far we've discussed the federal media, but on on the local level, it's a, uh, it's a it's a very different dynamics because the presidential administration just kind of it just does, doesn't have the resources to call every single local paper in, in newspaper in the country so in the regions you have these the special relationships between the governors of the local governor's office uh, and the local media and in some cases i've i've heard that well in so, in some in some regions especially the the uh, where this is the economic situation uh, is worse and uh, the corruption level is, is higher. That you know the government's uh, the, the governor's office has uh, a lot of influence and a lot of it, it, it can exert a lot of pressure uh, on, on the uh, on the local newspaper. And there is this uh, there's a special form of relationship uh, between a, a local newspaper and the governor's office, where well basically the governor 
buys this newspaper through a contract through a contract that's called the informational support. So a considerable, a considerable amount of editorial resources of the newspaper has to be dedicated to just covering the governor, how he's a great guy and how he cares for the region, etc. But the rest of it, they, 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 just, they just leave them alone. As soon as they, uh, you, know, t- you know, toe the line, praise the governor, and they can be really left alone. Or in some places I've heard, in the north, north of Russia, it's the local newspaper that controls the local governor. Because, or I'm reading some uh, newspapers in Yakutia, which is the, uh, the the far east region that occupies the the landmass equal to Germany, France, uh, and basically half of Europe. And uh, there, it's just too far away from Moscow. Moscow cannot really control a place that is eight hours ahead, basically on the other side of the globe. And I'm I'm reading these newspapers, and they're extremely critical of their lo- local governor. And they're really giving them a hard time because in these places uh, where, uh, you know, in these isolated places, everybody knows each other. And, you know, the, 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 the reporters and the editors of the newspaper, they've, kn- they've known this guy since childhood. So they know so much about him that, you know, he really just cannot shut down the paper because they just know too much about him. Uh, so it's yeah, so, so so it's really it's really different in the uh, on the federal level and on a local level between different regions. So it works. It's not there are a lot of nuances. It it, do, it, it doesn't work. It's not really uniform across all Russia. And in addition to paying a lot of attention to the Russian media and Russian propaganda, you've also been paying more attention to how Russia is being covered in, say, the West or the United States in particular. And there has been an explosion of interest in Russia because of the Russian interference in American elections, the Donald Trump. So what, what do you think of the, the media coverage of Russia in the so-called West? You know, what really baffles me is the, is the amount of articles that have been appearing over the uh, past couple of months, like 10 Russian words you need to learn to really understand Russia. Or some 200-year-old fiction that you need to read to understand Russia. Well, this is crap. <laughs> like, really, I'm I'm really offended at this attempt to to reduce like the entire history and cult and culture of my of my country to uh, to a listicle. Some of my uh, quote favorite unquote uh, tropes of Russian coverage. And uh, the, uh, I'm I'm actually compiling like a, a list of the worst offenders, uh, and one of my favorite was like, uh, why you need to read Dostoevsky to understand Putin's Russia? Well, Dostoevsky is fi- a it's fiction, b it's 150 years old, and nobody nobody I know uh, quotes Dostoevsky uh, in the everyday life. If you re- if you want to understand Russia through literature. Go for something like Saltakov Shedrin or or Gogol. Just don't go for the for the fir- for, for the liter- literally the first book you see on the uh, on a, on the shelf in a library that says Russian lit- literature. Yeah, so that's uh, one thing that really baffles me is why why do you have to struggle to like get Russia to understand Russia? I mean, Russia is not as, it, it, Russia is not an inherently impenetrable. I mean, I mean there are cultures you can learn Russian. And it, it'll take you about 10 years to be really fluent with only a slight accent left. And you can marry a Russian. And really, it'll take you just a, a decade to, re, to, to really just become Russian in all aspects, in language, culture, religion, and everything. Well, you cannot do that with, uh, with Korea, for example. You cannot, you cannot become Korean by choice because it's, it's, just, it's just too alien to, to, to European. Uh, Russia is a European country and with an Indo-European language that is difficult indeed, but n- not that much. So these attempts of of, of people of pundits to uh, to appear more knowledgeable than they really are, well, it's really laughable. Like a listicle of w- Russian words like disinformatsia or kompromat. And, and what do you think about this? Because another major trope, of course, is that you know Putin is, and this is something I talk a lot about that. They almost they buy into the Putin cult in the sense of you know instead of Putin being a superhero he's a supervillain but he's still super and you know and all power kind of emanates from him it's all part of this what I call I've called an article like 
phantasmagoria. So it's like, you know, hybrid warfare, information warfare. There's all of this kind of secret, covert stuff going on. What is your opinion about looking at Russia as this this kind of place? Well, it's I know for sure that this kind of coverage of Putin as a supervillain who holds all the all the pulls all the strings and controls everything. Uh, it's really flattering to him and his circle. Like that's that's exactly how he wants to appear to be. And in a way, Russia is really winning the propaganda war because everyone believes that it does. Yeah, and uh, I'm seeing these uh, these headlines like Putin is doing X to achieve objective Y. When it's really not specific to Russia, like Putin is using propaganda to achieve some domestic or international goals, but that's what every single every single other country in the world does. Or Putin weaponizes X, uh, Y, and Z. I read an art. I read it, I read a really awful article in the Foreign Policy uh, the other day, and it really er, very earnestly, within, w- w- without a hint of irony, just spent an entire paragraph listing the things that Putin is weaponizing. One thing that Putin doesn't really weaponize is weapons. And, and talk, I mean, and talk about talk about this issue of like Russia and the information war because you know, as you know, the American security services, politicians, you mentioned pundits and journalists, and even Russian experts, you know, they've made a lot out of you know RT and Sputnik and Russian trolls and bots and all of this stuff and the weaponization of information and fake news. And, and wh- what do you think of these as presented as threats? Are they over overhyping something, or is there something legitimate to the claims? Uh, another headline I, I I saw the other day: Putin delivered one thousand propagandists to key states to key states to uh, overturn a Hillary a Hillary victory or something like that. Like uh, the premise was that it's from a Senate hearing where somebody said that in key states like Michigan, they were Russian propaganda uh, operatives like propagandizing Americans into basically voting Trump by discrediting Hillary. But A, it's very patronizing towards ordinary Americans. Like they, the, the premise is that Americans are so gullible that an anonymous uh, Twitter troll can completely overturn their, their convictions. Like somebody was really undecided whether to vote for Trump or Hillary, and then he saw this, uh, this tweet like Hillary is corrupt, or Hillary is uh, gravely ill and unfit to 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 govern, and then he said, "Okay, that makes sense. Thank you, anonymous troll." I don't really believe that Americans are that that stupid and gullible. Yeah, so that a sounds really condescending to me towards your fellow Americans when you say that things like that, and b, I mean, I know these people, I know these Putin's propagandists. And, well, let's just say it took me 20 years to uh, study and practice English to get where I am now, and it's not perfect, really. And I do sound, even, even at my best, I don't really sound like a, like a native English speaker. This, but these guys who the American uh, you know, security services and uh, reporters and pundits say, not only they, are, uh, they, they do sound not just like Native Americans, but uh, convincing en- uh, they are convincing enough to completely uh, overturn these uh, fellow well supposedly fellow Americans convictions uh, like no really Putin doesn't have well 12 of those people in his possession <laughs> let, let alone thousand I simply don't know a single Russian person who speaks English well enough and is immersed in the American culture in a very broad sense that so that he appears so that he appears completely uh, identical to a, to a fellow american i mean there just aren't that many people you've also spoken about the notion that it let's take rt that a lot of the hype around rt now that the attention it gets in the western press actually helps rt in terms of budgeting and funding so what is your opinion of rt and and their reach and audience well, as one RT staffer told me, it's been like three months of Christmas in their in their newsroom since they've uh, you know the, the whole Trump Russia thing started with all with, the, with all the excessive coverage and the uh, intelligence community's reports that every single one of them just names RT as a grave threat to the American democracy. People at RT are telling me like we're getting 
so much free coverage, free ads, basically. It's also been a, one of the tropes of the Trump campaign is that even the media opposed to Trump delivered like uh, $2 billion in free coverage, in free, in free ads, basically, to Trump. Well, it's the same thing is happening to RT now, which so far has been so low below the radar that it doesn't re even register on Nielsen ratings. You know, this, the, 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 actual, the actual TV channel is regularly watched by so few people that it's nowhere near the, the same league with American cable uh, channels. And the one place, the other huge media market, the United Kingdom, it does register on, on ratings there. But its share of the, you know, of the UK TV market is about 0.05%. And knowing this, I cannot help but laugh, but chuckle when I, when I hear now the, the UK pundits, uh, you know, the, uh, the losing side of the, uh, of the Brexit debate, the guys who lost the elections. And now they're trying to retroactively explain their failure by blaming it on Putin. Which is, which, is, which is a very Putin thing to do. To blame your failure on an outside actor, which is what Putin, Putin TV has been doing for years now. Yeah, that's what's really the strange irony of all of this. And, and it goes to a, a, another thing that, that you said is a concern for you in, in an email to me. You said that, in my opinion, there are legitimate concerns about Russian interference, but it has produced those the, – the, the rhetoric around those concerns and, and how they're addressed has produced a lot of hysteria and a sort of spy mania where anyone who has – not anyone, but people who have connections to Russians are viewed as suspicious. Um, and and I, I saw this – how a recent tweet from um, the former Bush speechwriter David Frum calling for someone to actually take pictures of people going to an embassy party – in, in the Russian embassy in Washington. What, what do you think of all of this this talk of con connections with Russia being dangerous or suspicious? And that is exactly what Putin's own pundits on TV have been doing for these years. Like uh, singling out and shaming everyone who went to a reception at the US embassy in Moscow. I, I'm watching this as a, as a broken mirror, really. You know, even the, the staunchest Putin critics in Russia have been really dismayed at this at this coverage, at this toxic rhetoric in the, in the American media and, and in punditry. Because look at it this way, it's not just unproductive. And it doesn't make you more informed about uh, about Russia. If you label every Russian diplomat in the, in the United States as a spy, well, a fair portion of them are spies. An equal amount of American diplomats in Russia are spies too. That's how intelligence agencies works. And they just get together and, and, and tell each other, okay, guys, so we have 60 spies in your embassy in, in D.C., and we have 60 spies in, in our embassy in Moscow. And that's how it works. And actually, the career diplomats who work at embassies, they, they don't have much love for the neighbors. They, they, they call them neighbors. And they, they aren't really the same people. They are from a very different walks of life. And they have different goals. And have different values. And... Uh, it just doesn't help anyone if you paint them all with one brush. And it's not, just un it's not just unproductive. Just think of the consequences of this. So if an, if an uh, American pundit is calling for to strip RTO of its license, of its broadcasting license, uh, the next thing that happens, the Russian Foreign Ministry spokeswoman, Maria Zaharova, uh, literally, it takes her 10 minutes to come on air with a statement that we are gonna in, we're going to retaliate, we're going to strip BBC or the Voice of America of its license, because that's what, you go, that's what you guys are doing. And we are just retaliating, we're just responding in kind. And when David Froome is calling to, to basically name and shame everyone who goes to, uh, to a Russian embassy for a reception, the next thing that happens, I mean, I, uh, I as a journalist am meeting with, uh, with foreign diplomats all the time because I understand, uh, it's, not, it's not my job. I mean, I'm not getting anything out of it. I just understand that they have to, it's their job. They have to meet people on the ground to explain how things work there to, to build better relations. Because it's, it's really important to understand how things work in a, in a country. And that's what diplomats do. And that's what Sergei Kislyak does in the Russian embassy in Washington, D.C. And that's what uh, the, American, uh, the current American ambassador does. And what, what happened a couple of years back is that they, they did exactly the same thing in Russia. They 
there were camera crews hounding all the American diplomats in Moscow and hounding everyone who, who went inside or outside the American embassy in Moscow. And they shamed them on TV, like named them, uh, labeled them as traitors to the country. That was a really toxic thing. It was, a, uh, it was very painful to watch. Like this shouldn't be happening. And that's what happening is, that's what, ha that's what's happening in the United States right now. You don't, you don't want to be there, guys. You don't want to end up like Putin's Russia, believe me. And that's what you are doing. <laughs> yes. And, and that's the thing, though. You know, the window through which Russia and U.S. look at each other, you know, has, has, has always been a very fuzzy window. But it's turned it, – it, it functions as into what, what I call a funhouse mirror where you look in the mirror and you see distortions of yourself where, where each side's kind of own fears are, kind of, are projected onto this distorted mirror. Um, and it, that, that distortion is reflected back. So what do you what do you think of this this the problem of trying to understand each other through this window of the media and how does it impact Russian and American understandings of each other? There are Russians who don't rely just on on TV to uh, to understand the world, but that 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 demographics is uh, is significant is very it's really insignificant compared to the rest of the country, which I suspect is also applies to, to the United States, where most people just aren't really concerned about Russia. Russia isn't really on their, on their radar. So when they're watching cable news and, the, and when you have these very complex, nuanced matters reduced to a 40-second soundbite, it doesn't really help anyone, but, but I mean, on one hand, I understand the urgency uh, and all the restrictions of the modern media. You have to be the, the you have to be the you have to be the first to report a story, and you have you, ha you have to find an angle. But what happens is that you build this narrative, and you pick the experts for a panel. And there, are, this is re it's really difficult. Uh, I know that it's really difficult to pick the Russian experts for a panel because nobody on the government side uh, ever wants to talk that's the problem that that's the issue that all the reporters and uh, all the foreign reporters in Russia are facing nobody in the government ever wants to go on record all you have is kooks crazies like the crazies that you see on on talk shows that will just spout any any crap just to get some coverage uh, but uh, when you get an, a genuine ex uh, uh, expert in Russia like i get asked the question and I have this answer in my head with all the uh, all the details and nuances, and it just started as I start approaching this for, for to get a balanced and com uh, more or less complete picture of what I'm asked about. I'm cut off because there's just, just so much. There's only so much time uh, on a segment, and uh, well, yeah, it takes five hours to prepare to get to the studio, and then I get well exactly forty seconds on air, and it's really frustrating. It's different in, in, in Russia, you, you have some amazing experts and, for example, you have the, uh, the Carnegie Center in Moscow that really does a great job at explaining all the intricacies of the uh, American politics to Russians. Russians explaining America to Russians. But, of course, the, the reach of these, uh, of, uh, of these outlets, like Carnegie in Moscow or uh, these independent outlets that can, that can afford to spend enough time to, to explore a topic that's enough length to present um, a more or less coherent picture, you know, the reach of these outlets is really minuscule compared to the, uh, to the state media outlets that just go on and build this extremely contradictory narrative uh, devoid of any nuances at all. I mean, they're just painting these, uh, this apocalyptic picture of Russia and its nemesis, America, that is behind everything that is bad in, that is to blame for everything that is bad in Russia. And now they are, first they were trying to dig themselves out of this hole and they were trying to blame everything that's bad on Obama. So okay, this guy, this guy is gone. Is gone. So we can just blame everything on him and put Trump on the pedestal and paint him as this hero who will save the all the bad blood, all the bad blood between Russia and the United States. He will just come and fix it all, which of course it was never going to happen. And finally, personally, you've gotten a lot of attention from U.S. media of late because of all the talk of Russian propaganda, and you just express some of your frustrations with, you know, having to encapsulate a, a very complex issue in 40 seconds. So what would you suggest to 
Amer- the American media and how it addresses Russia. What types of things would you think would help better understand the complexity of the country and its political system? Uh, well, that's a, that, that's a that's a question I've been asking myself for a long time. And there have been some projects like like building these virtual bridges between Americans and Russians. And uh, the website I worked for, Tria Novosti, uh, it's a website that's called, its name roughly translates as foreign media. So what it does is just basically translates all the articles, uh, mostly about Russia, but not just, from all kinds of languages into, into Russian. Because Russians are incredibly, cu- incredibly curious about the outside world, about what the, what the outside world thinks of them. And I've, I've never seen su- such curiosity anywhere else. I mean, this website, it doesn't have, it doesn't really have counterparts anywhere else. A website that translates all the uh, articles in the foreign media about this country into this country's language. And I mean, it's one of the most popular news websites in Russia. And about, I think it was like five years back, it tried, it, it had a joint project with the New York Times. So this website I worked for, the, 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 the my predecessor, she translated the comments on the, uh, under the translations of the New York Times articles into English and posted it on a separate website so that Americans could just see what Russians are really thinking. And that was, they, that was before the, all, the, all the troll infestation. But even back then, all the, uh, all the comments were to the, tuna, uh, to the tune of, why do you guys hate us so much? Why do you, you, you don't understand a single thing about Russia? You, uh, all, all, every, everything you say about Russia in your articles is lies. Why do you hate us so much? And yeah, every sing- every other project uh, in the same vein, I know, ended in, in in mutual frustration because Americans aren't really just Americans on the average outside of these very uh, tiny circle of people professionally, either professionally dealing with Russia or just generally interested in Russian culture or politics. You know, I mean, this circle, I, I, I think I, I know every, every single person who has a professional interest in Russia. And I, that's about it, like a 200 people or something. But outside of this, Americans aren't really interested in the way, you know, Russian society works. Because it's, it's too far away. And, uh, and Russians are just indoctrinated into this uh, image of, you know, America being uh, uh, like the nemesis of Russia. So uh, one one thing that I had in mind was um, it was a thing called the space bridges, and uh, in the late Soviet times, well, thirty years ago to be exact, they had these. There was this uh, Phil Donahue show uh, oh, in the yeah. United States mm-hmm. yeah. with with Vladimir Posner. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so they put these a panel of experts and ordinary people in the studio, one in New York and one in Moscow, and they had a, they had a live discussion on air. Uh, that was transmitted all over Russia, all over the Soviet Union and the United States. So in the, in the United States, the audience for these, the, for, for these things was really, was really small. But in Russia, it was like one of the most watched TV shows ever. Ordinary Americans and American journalists explaining America to, to the Soviets. So that, that was incredibly popular and people are still, you know, it's, you, know you, you can still uh, find references to these Posner Donahue space 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 thing. So yeah, one thing that, uh, that I I can think of is well, what we me and you are doing now, like trying to build these virtual bridges and explain things to to each other outside of these you know really uh, twisted and biased. I understand all the limitations, but that's what it is. I mean, the the Russia coverage is is too sensational and too bias to to it's a it's a too rigid narrative of russia waging information wars like putin controlling everything and putin is an evil dictator which in many ways he is but there are nuances every every, everywhere you look there are nuances and it helps and it helps everyone by explaining these things by laying them out and the same, the same thing works the other way. And well, I wonder if uh, if uh, uh, that can happen again. That uh, the space bridge between uh, you know Russia and America, because the, I, I mean, this is really uh, the time is really the time is nine. That was Alexei Kovalov, a journalist living and working in Russia. He is the founder and editor of NoodleRemover.News, a Russian language fact-checking and anti-propaganda website. He also writes a bi-monthly column for the Moscow Times 
on the maneuverings of the Russian media. I'm your host, Sean Guillory, and this is the SRB Podcast. If you enjoy this podcast and want to help support it, please take a moment to share it on Facebook and Twitter, like my Facebook page, Sean's Russia Blog, write a review, or recommend the show to your friends. The SRB Podcast comes cheap, but it's not free to make. You can help support it by making a donation at seansrussiablog.org. Thanks to everyone who's been contributing. You can find past shows on iTunes, Mixcloud, and SoundCloud, or you can download them directly from seansrussiablog.org as well. Until next time, bye. We're living in a country that's the finest place on earth. But some folks don't appreciate this land that gave them birth. I hear that up in Washington they're having an awful fuss. Cause communists and spies are making monkeys out of us. The bureaus and departments have been busy night and day. They're figuring out just how we gave our secrets all away. And Congress has appointed a committee, so they said, to find out who's American and who's a low-down red. They call them up to Washington to speak for Uncle Sam. But when they ask them what they are, they shut up like a clam. I wish they'd take and put me on the witness stand today. I'd yell so loud, old Stalin could hear me all the way. I'm no communist, and I'll tell you that right now. I believe a man should own his own house and car and cow. I like this private ownership, and I want to be left alone. Let the government run its business, and let me run my own. Our government is bigger than it ever was today. The more they hire to work for it, the more they have to pay. Our public servants should be proud and honest, you would think, instead of...